I found this cool feature of Hasura. <laughs> oh, yeah? What is it? It's actually really cool. It's a dangerous, dangerous feature. Um, you know how when we have like our servers functions, you can't use set timeout because mm-hmm. as soon as you send the response, the entire JavaScript uh, VM runtime just shuts down. So anything you had queued up on the run loop doesn't actually get to run, mm-hmm. which has been annoying because uh, there's been times where we get an API request and we want to do something in 30 seconds and we can't. We just can't. Uh, and um, Hasura has a feature where you can send it a post request and say, hit this URL with this data. Basically, like make this fetch request to this URL at this time. So you basically... You, you can use Hasura as your run loop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think all those problems are about oh, to go away. Gosh, and we're please be don't. Just, throwing data at Hasura to queue up. It's just, it's funny, man. It's just. How about uh, instead of that, we just use a normal JavaScript environment? Yeah, I think that's going to take a while. (laughs) Um, Welcome to Front End First. Uh, Actually, today we are going to be talking about JavaScript environments, aren't we? Yeah. Um, Today we wanted to talk, we didn't have any specific kind of topic um, queued up, but, but we have been doing work on our site. So we figured it'd be, it'd be worth talking about, um, specifically, uh, kind of the static dynamic stuff that a lot of folks in our circles are talking about these days. So, um, you've been doing this work mostly, but why don't we start off by talking about kind of how we built, build UI from the beginning. And like, we mm-hmm. might talk a little bit about Ember map too. Um, yeah. actually, I think we should talk about Ember map because Ember map had a, pr- a very big influence on, on this. Yep. Why don't you, why don't I talk about EmberMap? You can talk about Build UI, and then we can I can finish talk about up where we are. Been, yeah, what we've been doing. Awesome. So, so EmberMap was a, a Rails API Ember front end, and um, we wanted to add server rendering, but server rendering in in Ember uh, takes a while. You can't really do it at runtime because it can take like three or four seconds. Uh, Why did we want to add server rendering? Great question. Uh, OG tags, and there were some just like. If you click the link on Twitter, you end up on Ember Map. You get a white screen, and then the JavaScript app starts running and starts painting. And there was just enough a delay where the browser says it's fully loaded, but there's still a white screen. It just felt a little uncanny, and we knew that that you know just sending HTML from the server would fix us. Yeah. So, so those two reasons. Yeah, and um, for folks who haven't didn't go through the period of like. Uh, single app bundle SPA development like we did. Um, this was, uh, you know, didn't have any any sort of server rendering. So today you send bundles. A lot of times they're split by route, but they are pre-rendered at build time. So at least you have some HTML you're sending up. So there's kind of a gradient here where you go from zero server rendering at all. You literally just have like an empty div tag that is going to be the root of your SPA application. That's what we had. Um and then you get the bundle and it doesn't render anything. You don't see anything in the browser until the JavaScript is run and calls enter HTML or whatever. Yep. Um, but it made for a nice um, experience once you were on the site because any link click could be just rendered client side. All the data in the code was there. And so you didn't have to wait on the network at all. In fact, you could like click a link on an airplane that had very um, low like latency, low bandwidth connection. And 
once you actually loaded the first page, clicking around the site could be really quick. So, um, yeah, it was kind of this trade-off between the upfront loading and, and subsequent page navigation, but that was the architecture there. Yep, yep. So uh, we still had this kind of request response app, but it was it was slow because of the, the server rendering technology we were using. Uh, and so what we did is we, we looked at all the pages that we wanted to server render, and we noticed like for every page, it could be in one, or th- one of three states. It was like you're an anonymous user viewing the page, so you're just like a random user in incognito mode. Uh, the second was you're a user, but you're not currently subscribed. So you're logged in, but you don't have access to view the content. Um, Ember Map was like Build UI. It was a video site made videos for Ember developers. So just a little context there. Yep. And, and the, some the videos third... were free. Some videos were pro. So exactly, exactly. And the third state was you are logged in, and you have access. You're logged in and subscribed, and you have access to everything. And um, we noticed that we only needed to generate those three different pages for every user, right? It wasn't like accounting software where you see like your P&L and that's different for every user. Uh, in the Emmermap case, every user fell into one of three buckets. So what we did is we um, basically like poor man's build. This is before like SSG or, or build time stuff really existed. Uh, we would basically generate the HTML, shove it into Redis, and then when a user visited the site, we would just do a quick auth check and then serve uh, one of those three versions of the page they were requesting. And it was all uh, from Redis, so we didn't have to wait on code to uh, to, to generate any of those pages. So no, uh, it didn't matter if the runtime stuff to generate those pages took four or five seconds, three or four seconds, we could just serve it right from cache. And so um, that, that ended up working pretty well. Um, oh, and if we ever had any let's say we ever had any uh, like truly user content, things like your receipts and your invoices. We didn't want to put those in a cache. Uh, so what we would do is we would never initially render those. Um, the client would make a fetch request to an API to download those. And then like it would basically be JavaScript rendering, CSR rendering. That's that kind of gets called that today. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that was the approach and um, yeah, it worked out well. And, you can talk about kind of how that influenced our uh, future decision making. Yeah, sure. So yeah, that that was um, like you said, it's not accounting software. You know what we recognized about the site, which probably also came from a lot of what we did when we worked at TED. We also worked on media sites, and um, you can kind of break down a site if you look on like the pixels on a given screen. How many of these pixels are the same for every user and how many of them are different? And if it's like 95% of the pixels are actually the same, you know, you're signed in to watch a video uh, on like TED.com, but you have a username that's different, but everything else is the same. The talk is the same. Um, then uh, th- that that tends to bend that curve more towards wanting to, to do the work up front and share the work across users. Whereas something like, you know, um, YNAB or Bank of America it might not make sense to do to try to architect it in a way where you can pre-generate the page because 90% of the pixels are for the user. And so going from there to the Ember SPA to like the the Redis cache made us realize that, right? And then, you know, basically that was in 2015, I think we launched Ember Map or 2016? 2016. Yeah, around that. 2016. Yeah, yeah 2016. Yeah. And um, so about, you know, five years later, here we are. 
six years, five, six years later, five or six. And obviously like the SSG pre-generating public pages thing is a big part of the ecosystem. And it seemed like a great fit for build UI because build UI is in the same category where even though there might be like an overlay for people who aren't logged in or don't have access, the video thumbnail is the same for everybody. The title, the description, most of the page that you see is the same kind of, or so we thought, right. And that was enough to, to say, okay, this is going to benefit greatly from this architecture because you can't get much faster than a pre-built HTML page on a CDN somewhere. That's the idea anyway. So, um, so when we built build UI, we use Next.js. Next.js has runtime data fetching methods, but it also has a really nice setup for, um, for doing, uh, static generation. And, um, that's kind of how we approached it. Now, uh, in spite of like 90% of those pixels being in one of two buckets, either you're signed in as a subscriber or not, um, uh, they're still the same for each user. So it's something, there's this kind of continuum from like static to dynamic, but dynamic, the word dynamic doesn't really capture everything, right? So uh, we basically fetch the data we needed from our backend, pre-built all the pages for each video in the site, but we still needed to have some dynamism to show, hey, you know, you don't have access to this video. Also, we wanted to hide the, the pro URL that's coming from our backend so that people couldn't watch the video if they weren't signed in. Of course, you don't want that in the static page. And so we do that on the client as well. But um, you kind of have to have some logic there based on the user session. And there's a couple techniques you can do that while still leveraging the kind of SSG architecture, um, which we've learned from, you know, some of the work we've done. Also, people in other communities like SvelteKit community, I know does this as well. Um, you can kind of run some JavaScript right before you render this page and just basically toggle some sections or not. You could do it by adding a class to like the body tag and then like showing or hiding things with CSS. You don't want sensitive data coming through because people could just look at the source. But as far as the UI is concerned, that would achieve it. And it's nice because it lets you build this incredibly fast site and still give people the UI that is appropriate for them. But it's let's, a little let's, hacky. Yeah, let's go into a little, de a little more detail there. So when we're statically generating the site, we're generating one HTML file and we include everything that non-subscribers should see in it and everything that subscribers should see so like if you were to look at our html it looked like almost like two, two sites, sites kind of like rolled up into one and then before our our html before you see the html we have a, a blocking script tag that right. runs it's like the first line of uh, in the head tag right and that figures out if you're logged in or not and then it basically or if you have a subscription or not right and if you do have a subscription it hides the quote unquote free version of the site that's right. in the HTML right. and, and the, and then the opposite. If you don't have a subscription, the paid version of the site is still there. It's just hidden from you. Right. Exactly. So, <laughs> so, 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 so again, people use this on as it's kind of like a little technique for just, um, if you want to augment a, what is typically a static site with a little bit of dynamic behavior, you can do it. Uh, we first saw on a blog where the blog is the same, literally the same for everyone, except you have maybe a banner at the end that says, Hey, check out our service if you're not signed in. So the actual blog page is the same. You can imagine being on like Tailwind blog, Tailwind, CSS.com. 
It's like a doc site. It's the same docs for everybody. But what if they let you sign in? Maybe like they would say, oh, if you're signed in, we know you have Tailwind UI. Don't put an ad for Tailwind UI on the side of the docs. But if you're not, then you can show that. So you could build this whole thing and it would be a good um, candidate for like SSG because it just saves you, it does save you a lot, a lot of work. But then you have this little piece of content, like you said, that you maybe you just check a cookie, you know, and um, you toggle that and you can do it in the blocking uh, head section with some blocking JavaScript. We use, we do this in like underscore document in our next app, which is where we've seen that done. Again, like I talked to Rich once and he said we, it's a really nice technique actually to use. Uh, even in our Svelte kit project, we do that sometimes. Um, for like seeing the user's preference on dark mode is another good use case for it. You, you don't know at the server time. So either at the request time from the server or at build time, uh, whether the user is going to be, have a preference for dark mode or light mode. So you can run some blocking JavaScript, toggle that class. And that way the first paint they see of the site, even though it's a statically generated site, will have the correct styles. Um, so this is like another example of that. So we kind of did that because in our minds, build UI seemed like it was a mostly site, site that was mostly static. Even though it was like two buckets, it was mostly the same for them. And we like making these sites that are like really fast because it's just satisfying to have a site that's like that feeling where you just click on it's instant. But um, that's kind of where we started last fall. And, you know, since then, as we've been building the site out, adding more features that we want, it's become apparent that it's more of a dynamic site, right? And uh, if you look at those pixels, maybe they're not um, 95% the same. And in fact, the more features we want to add, we don't don't want to have to think about that. So, you know, the thumbnail of the video is the same. It's true. But, um, you know, for somebody who's not signed in, they have an overlay that tells them this is a, you know, a pro video. You have to subscribe. Click here to learn more about it. And um, the way you do this is not the same as how you would conditionally render dynamic content normally in a React app. So you kind of have you end up with these two paradigms. And it just puts more cognitive load on the developer to think about it. And really, it feels like a technique that would be good if performance was like this really critical thing and slash or you were having performance issues at the beginning. But nobody would do this by choice to start out with if it wasn't a constraint that was forced on them. It's much easier to just fetch the data. Oh, I know I have a user who signed in. They have access. Do this. You know, else do this in normal like ternary ternary expressions in your react components um, and ha and having the data in javascript no blocking javascript that runs ahead of time no toggled css class we just conditionally render content the way we always do in react mm -hmm. so what, yeah that kind of sets the stage i guess for some of the work you've been doing yeah yeah so just like to talk about some sort of potential solutions here like one is we could we, we talk about like what is it the the lowest common denominator of the page that everyone should see so it's like everyone's going to see a header everyone's going to see a title everyone's going to see maybe like the video play time the um, description that what's up next in the series yep ex exactly so maybe just server render that and then have the client basically fetch the other data at like browser runtime based off who the user is. So if you have a subscription, you start fetching the video file. If you don't have a subscription, you start fetching like the overlay for the sign up and all that stuff. Uh, but we didn't want to do that. That we kind of quickly, I know that's like a fine idea, but we quickly shut that down because um, we don't like how when you visit a website and then stuff starts flashing and you kind of have to wait a few paints before you're supposed to see what you're actually supposed to see. Yeah. Um, there's yeah, versions so of this I think we could make like tasteful, but 
Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. So you're yeah, talking- I just want to acknowledge like why we were not going down that road. Right. So you're kind of talking about kind of where we are in the current journey. So kind of everything yeah. we just talked about gave us, came as a decision point where we're trying to shoehorn more and more dynamic features into a, what's essentially a static site. We end up with multiple paradigms for conditionally rendering dynamic content. And the, the main pain point there is like, we just don't want to have to think about that. We want to be able to move faster on dynamic features on the site and not have to think about that. So then it, the question is, well, what do you do now? Yeah. Um, and that was kind of the first, that is one option there, which is yep. basically kind of what Embermap is effect almost not, not, not quite because Embermap had the ability to give you two different versions of the site based on the user at runtime. Cause the cache was used. And like you said, at the beginning, we served up the correct page from cache after we do the user check. Whereas now we have effectively the site is cached because it's, it's statically generated, but the, you know, the static generation part is all done for us automatically by Next.js and the hosting at the CDN layer is all done for us by Vercel automatically as well. So that's nice because there was a lot of code we had to write for Embermap to get this Redis cache working. And it was just like something we did by ourselves and had to figure it all out. But it's, 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 it's not as flexible. So we couldn't do that. And that's kind of where we ran into this problem. So that was like the problem and the decision point. And like you just said, one one tree one node down the tree the decision tree here is keep as much static as we can and do client side stuff to add the, the truly dynamic stuff at the end um we didn't want to do that because we really just wanted to simplify the architecture have one decision for how to fetch data one way to fetch data one way to conditionally render data and um if you want server side rendering which we do because we're a media site. People share our videos on Twitter and we want there to be OG tags with images and all that good stuff. Uh, among other things, uh, we want server rendering there. So doing yeah. dynamic data at, on the client at all is kind of like not really, really what we want to do because we want that one paradigm. Yeah. Another option just to cover, it's more of a kind of like an advanced Next.js option, but what you can do is you can generate multiple versions of a page in Next.js. So you get like you have like um the file on disk would be something like uh video slash underscore logged in dot js and th- and that's like a page, a Next.js page. And then another one that's like video slash logged out JS and, and another one, you know, for every version you can create a new JS file and you statically generate, you know, let's say three or four pages and then you use middleware at request time to check if the user has a subscription, if they're logged in or not. And um, you then basically, you do a rewrite, which you can think of as almost like a redirect, but the user doesn't see the URL they're being served. So the user's browser, the URL stays the same, but they get a different piece of content, a different page you generated. And uh, this can work nice, but it's kind of two reasons we didn't go down this road. The first being that it's a little confusing to us as developers. Like if we have one URL that maps to multiple pages, just a little hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. It, it's not on the happy path of the framework. And part of the reasons we like using a framework is a next developer yeah. could come in. And if I'm looking at a URL in the browser, I can easily find the code that's generating that page. And now you kind of lose some of that. Yeah. And then the second is because you're statically generating this page, you, you kind of get like this multiplication table where if you have like two features that should be statically generated by two features that should be statically generated, you end up with like four pages. Every feature you add 
it it grows like exponentially, right? So, um, yeah. So so right. just I just want to acknowledge that because I know that's something we looked at, and it's a nice solution. It is a nice solution in the sense that you do get the bucket architecture. Yeah. That so that's earlier. that's what I was going to say. It strikes me that it's it's almost uh, equivalent to what we ended up with with Ember Map and um, Ember Map is a. It, not equivalent, but it, it it's it's similar in that you have a proxy layer. Approach. You have yeah. a proxy layer that is sitting in between the stuff that is able to be pre-generated and the request. And the proxy layer can use some runtime information uh, in order to route you to the right entry in the cache. That's effectively uh, the idea there. Um, yeah, exactly. One thing that's a little just a little off about this is that in the Emmermap version, you don't have like multiple files. You have one yeah. page yes. for a video. So, you don't have multiple versions of the page. And that's, so this can that's part of the confusing tricky. thing yes, about exactly. going off a happy path. And it and, and exactly. I I think I actually think this could be a pretty interesting like feature that uh, tools like Next or other sites that support other frameworks that support static generation could offer. And I actually think if they had it, that's where that is what we would have used at least at the beginning. Um, oh, of course. Yes. Uh, it, it, I just got, want to echo yeah. everything you said. So yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> if you, if you got, if you got a prop into your page that specified a bucket, you know, a version of the page to return and you could use that as a cache key effectively. And, um, that's, you would specify which, which props, uh, are the keys that, that key the page, that version of the page. And that's the same for everybody or different for everybody. Um, because uh, caching, it, it's not just about static generation versus not. It, it's a, it's a, it is a continuum. And even though there are multiple versions of Build UI because it changes whether you're logged in, logged out, and have a subscription or not, uh, you can still break it down. If you were to look in a bucket, there's you know a third of the page, a third of the users see one thing, a third of the users see another thing, a third of the users see another thing. Now they all have their email in the header when they're signed in, so that part is different. But again, if you broke it down by pixels. Once you're in one of those predefined buckets, you are looking at 99% of the pixels are the same for everybody. So that's where caching does kind of come in and it makes more sense. Whereas something like accounting software, there are no buckets that are shared across users that make sense. So yep. it doesn't, it's not really worth it to cache in that sense, in, in that case. Um, so, so that strikes me as a feature that would make sense in these sorts of frameworks because it's not a black and white decision. Um, and, and one that we would have used and, um, Embermap, again, basically does use at a high level the buckets architecture. And if you go click around Embermap, it's very fast. Even though it was built seven years ago before people were really talking about SSG as part of these dynamic frameworks, it's really fast. It works well because that work has just been done once for those different buckets. There's also some prefetching we're able to do on the client. But even still, um, <laughs> Ember was not made to generate responses at runtime from a server uh, a server uh, process that's not like on a MacBook with nice GPUs and all this stuff, right? It, 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 that came after the fact. And so the caching in the buckets thing, it, it works really nicely even even with years old architecture. So um, that just that's just interesting to me that I hadn't really thought that that, that could be could 100% be a feature. Um, but since it's not a feature, we don't want, we just want to stay in the happy path with the tools we're using. So, yep. You know, just, it, it, it's interesting that you brought up using like the props to control kind of your buckets or, or your caches. I, I really like that idea because, you know, it, if we want to put an email in a prop and we want to like blow away our 
cash hit ratio like that's on us but it gives us like, right it gives us like oh we actually we want this to be shared so these are the props i i, I really like that it's kind of like the the entry point into this absolutely we're, we're creating multiple pages and then using the middle middleware to rewrite between them feels too um yeah it's like you said not happy path too low level yeah, you. I mean, you could literally. I, I think if if this were, if I snap my fingers and this were a feature, you could even automatically cache the page by the page props because you're fetching the video. You know, you're fetching the, the so you have the video ID or whatever, and and you're fetching the the user's uh, auth state, and so you return the video, and then whether you're subscribed, uh, anonymous, or you know, guest, you're a subscriber, or you're logged in, authenticated, or whatever. And uh, it would just automatically cache by those three things. And so if one of those change, you can break the cache or evict it or whatever. And uh, otherwise, you serve that page up. And then and then you would just, if you had user-specific data that, you know, like you said, if you fetched it and get server-side props or get static props or whatever, that that would become a cache key automatically. So you would, that would defeat the purpose. But once you learn that, you would be able to fetch that on the client if you wanted to just get the user's uh, information up there. So... Um, that would be a pretty awesome API, I'm sure. I'm sh- I'm sure that will eventually make it into at least some of these frameworks because um, conceptually you're at the same URL, but you want to ha- you have multiple just a few versions of the static content. So, mm-hmm. um, cool. And then I I guess I, we'll talk about the third option and kind of where we ended up going, and that's just traditional server rendering. So you get a request, you look up the user, find out what they should or should not have access to and then render on the server and send that down. Um, before we talk about that and like what, what sort of things we ran into there, uh, there was something that like during, like I think it was like at this point in the journey where we realized, where we realized what there's not just a continuum between static content and dynamic content. There's also a continuum between static content and user content. So, I, yeah. Do you want to? Do you want? Yeah, talk about absolutely. This? So, uh, going back to what you said uh, and where we kind of ended up heading, it's basically like if you went back to next when they introduced get server side props, uh, because that is a normal architecture of a PHP site, Rails site. Um, you know, get server side props is a hook that runs at request time and then responds. So the question is like, why did a lot of the community move towards SSG stuff? Well, those hooks, that, that hook, get server side props are the equivalent in what like the JavaScript ecosystem was, was using. Um, there is a lot to make sure like a runtime site like that stays fast as it scales a lot, you know, uh, a rail site is very fast, especially for a company like ours, a website like ours that's starting and has, you know, I don't know how many visits we get, but whatever the equivalent of like hundreds of users, you know, in different buckets is. And that will last you for a long, long time. But, you know, rail sites do need to be uh, tweaked as they get bigger. You have a single server. And so there's all sorts of techniques for doing that. The kind of the extreme end of that case is... Again, like some of the sites we worked on at at TED, which used Rails at the time we were there, and uh, needed more than just one Rails server, and and the kind of complexity 
um, the, the jump in complexity from kind of what you would get in a in the guides and rails to something that would work at a scale like that is big. You know, there's a lot involved and there's a lot of decisions to make. So SSG and pre-generating just static files it is in a lot of ways, it, it sidesteps a lot of those decisions and a lot of the complexity that you need to get a runtime site to be able to scale like that. And again, as long as it works with these constraints of being like mostly the same and not having different buckets and all this stuff, it is a very easy way that something like a, a tool, like a framework can do to take all that work off of your plate. If you can get your site to be uh, a static site and show the tool how to do it, boom, you're done. It's like you, you can, you can have an article go crazy bananas on Hacker News and not worry about it. So that's kind of the mindset that a lot of these tool makers had and the problems that they were solving because their biggest customers were running into those issues, right? And, um, it's tools like e-commerce sites, which, which have lots and lots of pages, lots and lots of customers. And again, conceptually, it's like we, we are consistently running into uh, resource issues and, you know, servers lose dropping requests and all this stuff because they're generating all, all this stuff and we're getting spikes of traffic at shopping times. And so look, what we, what we can do is just pre-generate this stuff and then CDNify it and, and we're good to go. And those shopping pages, like an Amazon page, look like mostly the same for most people. So that is a, that is a case where the problem is big enough that we have to address it with this technology. And it is amazing that all of the caching stuff that we saw, all the CDN, all the varnish code, all of the different options, the different ways you could go, you don't actually have to do that. And you can match, it's gone. And you can, you can match the performance of those teams, those app systems with all those layers by just, you know, create next app, pushed to Vercel and done. So that's amazing. Um, but what we realize is that, uh, so, you know, uh, dyna- and then, and then that's what also motivates the subsequent, uh, improvements to these systems like, uh, Next.js has the incremental static regeneration. So now that you have that, you know, and Gatsby was like kind of the first way we were introduced to this. Gatsby was the original one that said, okay, we are having a way to query your data with like the content mesh and GraphQL. But once we get it, we can just statically build it, distribute it, and you're not going to have scaling issues. But what you do have is that you have build time issues, right? And so now what we need to do is address that because we're not running into the issues with with serving your page, but your developers are complaining because you make a change to a blog in your CMS and now you have to rebuild the site and it takes a long time. So then you have uh, things like incremental static regeneration, which came with next, which is, okay, how do we just basically, again, it's, it's, an, it's an API for evicting a cache entry and regenerating it the same way Embermap has it, the same way we had our systems at TED. Anybody who has wired it faster themselves has ways to do this. It's just nice, nicer, nicer APIs for doing that sort of thing. And that solves that problem very well, too. So now you can have your CMS, your backend data source scale, you know, in size and grow, but uh, it doesn't have that uh, commensurate uh, effect on your build times. And so you have like a linear cost on the build time uh, increase as you need to evict cache entries, right, with this and, approach. And the the interesting thing here is like all your static, all your static site in a way just became dynamic because when someone updates the CMS, that's like changing data in a database, that's dynamic data. Right. But you have the ability to just invict, you know, the two or three spots where that data is used. 
you don't have to rebuild. You're no longer in this frame set of, oh, we, we're, we're a static website, so we have to rebuild and reship to the CDN and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, they give you the, the, uh, the performance of static, but the tools that truly like dynamic sites, like an e-commerce site that has its data stored in a CMS or database would need. Right, exactly. And so now you have this notion that's like, well, static is super fast, but we have a dynamic site. Well, you can have your cake and eat it too. And um, that's where this notion of like static uh, performance, but dynamic data comes in. And so, you know, all that kind of has happened. And we've been like living through that over the last like five, six years. And then we go through this journey that we just outlined with build UI and kind of one thing that we realized talking about this and, and some of the frustrations that we had with having two paradigms for, you know, rendering dynamic data basically is, is kind of what at the end of the day, what it is. There's other issues too. There's definitely other issues, but that's like a, a big one is that, um, uh, not only do we have a dynamic site, um, we, we have, uh, so, so there's different kinds of dynamic sites, right? And, uh, the Amazon page is dynamic in the sense that there are, their catalog changes all the time. But if I send you that product link, it is the same for you and me, right? Um, so it's dynamic because the data is changing often enough that it should live in a database and that database changes regularly. But then you have the, the kind of sites we're talking about with accounting uh, software. So you say, well, accounting software, it, it QuickBooks, that's a dynamic site. Obviously, the data lives in a database. Why doesn't that um, uh, fit the, uh, the needs uh, and the constraints of these kind of like static uh, systems where it can, these tools can automatically cache it for you? Like that's dynamic, but we could just use these tools and make it static and solve any scaling issues that we have uh, or performance issues. But what makes the accounting software different is that the dynamic data is user spe user specific. So there are no buckets. There are no lines you can draw that would give you buckets that you could put in large groups of the users in for the dynamic pages on the site. And so that's an exa example where this architecture is, is actually not what you want. And it's not good. And, um, what we realized is the more and more kinds of features we want to add to build UI, fit more along the user dynamic data than just the general dynamic data. And so like in Ember map, we had video views. If you've watched a video, we have a little check there or you have like a watch list, right? Or, or the settings pages that you were talking about and managing your team and, and all that sort of thing. You could imagine adding recommendations for that user, um, adding paths that they've been through all of that sort of stuff. Um, Actually, even though it's dynamic, it's not enough to just say, yeah, that's a dynamic feature because it's a dynamic feature with the user in mind. It's user-specific dynamic data, and that falls outside the lines of kind of this architecture. And so um, that was kind of a realization we had uh, is that this kind of static, static-ish architecture um, is good for solving performance problems for non-user-specific dynamic data. But if you don't have performance problems or you have user dynamic data, then this is not really, uh, it's not worth adopting those constraints, taking on those constraints um, if you don't have those problems. Well said. That was great. Thank you. So, okay. So uh, where we end up is, uh, I think, you know, we looked at like, 
there's a few things here. So where we end up, we want to do the server rendering. I think a big reason for that is we we thought about the rendering in Rails and rendering in PHP. Uh, request comes in. You can basically do a bunch of if statements based off the state of the, the user that's making the request and return different HTML. So we kind of end up at wanting to use um, server rendering to solve these problems. I, I think there was another layer too, is that, uh, you know, in the past few months, there's been a lot of talk of React server components, doing more work on the server based off the request, and then also seeing um, our experience with Remix and basically having one place to load data and then feed that into uh, to the React components. So I think a combination of like, those three things really just said, well, we should just make a request response based uh, website. Also, too, and just we know we don't have those scale issues. I would like right. to have those scale yeah. issues, but, but, but we don't. So. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think it's worth as a side note here. Um, you know, there's a reason people started doing more work on the client because you can it lets you make more interactive, rich experiences. You can make sites a lot faster, not just faster, but you're, you you want to add more interactive, rich UI components to the front end. You're already writing in JavaScript. And uh, as so as an aside, we considered going back to like client side rendering because like the paradigm of Ember and Rails was awesome. It was even awesomer when we got to discover Asura because now we didn't have like the two app problem. Uh, we didn't have to write a Rails app at all. We could just be in our JavaScript front end happy land. And also libraries like SWR made the whole data layer aspect even better than what we had with Ember that we like it better. And so, you know, to, to this day, that's still my favorite way to write apps because you feel like there is, there is never a point uh, just like it sucks when you're running a static site, you hit hit a point where you want dynamic things, and you're like, "Oh man, my hands are tied because I'm like, and I've like put these static constraints on myself." If you're doing request response and you don't have a paradigm for front end stuff, or you need the data to do an optimistic save, or you want to on on hover load some data, you can't on hover load data from a server function <laughs> because the user's hovering in the client. And so the the the, the client side architecture of doing the kind of API layer and going all to the front end still my favorite way to write apps right now because you never have those constraints and we know we'd want to be able to add you know a floating um youtube player all, all these sort of things and uh uh not video player not youtube player but uh so we talked about doing that but for exactly the reasons you said we felt like it'd be going against the grain of the way that the major frameworks are moving and encouraging people to go um now, a lot of the frameworks encourage people to go to SSG, but it wasn't the right fit for us. This feels a little bit different also because React, the actual library, um, which is what we use, is going towards like server components and encouraging people to fetch data in the server. A lot of things fall out from that. You want the user session in the server. You want to be generating a lot of work uh, um, uh, from your page at server, on the server at request time. So those were the reasons, in spite of what's in my heart of hearts, that we didn't get to do our client-side rendered app. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I did say that after this whole experience, is a, now is the time to convince me to do mm -hmm. client-side rendering. I, 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 I will say with, with both Remix and with React server components, it does seem like they are both able to bend that trade-off curve in like use a server to load data and feed it into your components, but then use your components to build those rich experiences. Right. Just don't use the components to load data. Right. Um, so it does. I, I do feel it's a lot like, better than, uh, yeah. than five years ago or whatever, or what yeah. we it, used last time. It, it's going to be super interesting though, for sure. In like three or four years to, uh, 
to retro like basically this, to we should review this yeah yep <laughs> this yep. podcast yep. And, that's uh, true and uh see where we end up that's true all right so um yeah why don't you talk about some of the the work you've been doing basically um that involves kind of uh identifying the parts where those static the ssg constraints made force us to make different decisions and um you know like we said the next has get server-side props which is the, is designed for this to, to begin with so it's not like this framework doesn't support what we want to do making websites like a rails app you know yeah yeah i think uh like our, our original just like let's hack the website together in a weekend first version had get server-side props and one of the things we ran into there was uh cold starts because mm. we we're using serverless and so that was one of the things that nudged us towards that that down that ssg path um one interesting thing that kind of didn't really think about but when you're doing a lot of work at build time you you don't really care about latency uh because it's at build time right like the difference between a, a 60 second build and a 70 second build is that it just i'm gonna just say that it just doesn't matter right um so we would just, it's very easy for just us to say, okay, we're going to ping this service. We're going to ping this service. We're going to wire all this data together. Optimizing for ease of use, less code written, you know, not worrying about um, if you're adding a service to do auth or to serve up your content, you know, is it, um, is it ready for a runtime to handle a runtime request kind of thing? Yeah. Even just like kind of like an example, like uh, you can just have like you're looping over when you're statically generating a site, you're looping over all the pages and you're statically generating them. If all those pages end up like duplicating their data fetch, you really don't care. Like you don't worry about that until you're in like the, the over 10 minutes of build time. Right. Um, so it's just one thing. You just don't care about latency. You don't think about latency. Uh, so moving towards the, the request response cycle, uh, doing that, it's the latency is a lot more um just something you need to keep an eye on so like okay we're querying firebase for our users uh we're querying hasura to find out if they have an active subscription we're querying the cms to pull all the content out um that's like three different services where where are our where's our server running like what's the location in the world that's like in the middle of all those services there's just a lot of mm -hmm. things that come up so um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think that's been like the most interesting thing i don't really have a great answer for it i guess i guess the thing is most of these services are they do a good job being like runtime dependent so there's mm -hmm. all the service like firebase doesn't say um like don't don't block a request response right. based stuff us well so this is i'm still like working through this but like they are made to run on the client so some of them they, are yeah no, they, I mean, Firebase is made to run on the Firebase client. is, right, right, right. Yeah, so it's weird that, like, now we're, like, blocking a request response. I mean, they do have like, a Node API, so it's not like they don't have Node. They don't. They have Ruby SDKs. They have they have Node I know, SDKs. I know, So, but they're made to run on the client. They, they were designed originally to run on the client, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that that sort of thing has, has been interesting. Um, mm -hmm. I've been doing a lot of instrumentation there. Like, that's, like, the mm -hmm. best advice I have. Like, rather than, like, don't do this or do it this way. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, using log drain with, um, with just console time. Mm -hmm. console, it's, like, console time and console time end mm -hmm. in JavaScript. So you do, like, console time and you say, like, fetching user. 
you run some code and then you do console.timeend fetching user and you'll get back to JavaScript will spin out a thing a that log. Says, like a log that says this took you know, 46 milliseconds to, run. to fetch the user, like fetch the user, user, whatever yeah. was mm -hmm. in between those, those two console times. Right. Uh, so that's been really helpful. And then sending that off to a log service and aggregating those and, and looking at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's just, that's kind of like your, uh, you're preempting the, 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 the performance potential issue there. Um, it's not like, uh, it might not actually be a problem in a sense. It's just, it's just feels well, very different to work it, to, to click around the site now that it's a runtime generating based on these services than it is in production right now because it's static and the jury's out whether it's actually a problem like it might be fast enough even no it, it is so it's it's fast enough from like my point of view right but it, i think it would affect our decision there would be decision making around what services we use i see um yeah for sure for sure if you are starting a new project and this was the architecture you're saying. Yes. yes. But in terms of this particular project and the particular services we're using, we don't, it's not actually clear whether it's an issue or not. Uh, I, I'm, it's I'm a personal okay. issue for you. <laughs> no, I'm okay saying that it's acceptable. Yeah. But I, I, part of me is like embarrassed. It takes 500 milliseconds to render a page. Like, if I that, think that's like, yeah, yeah. If that, if and that, I would also push back and I would say like, we're using we're using Firebase because it's quote unquote easy, easy, but yeah. it's actually not easy because now we have this. Well, not weird... if we have to add things that compensate for it not being able to do its thing at, at runtime or whatever. Right. So right. Yeah. Right. 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 So, so yeah, uh, that's that's kind of that's kind of you know you're trading one set of problems for another, but uh, it's such a simple site, it, it, relatively, and it should be uh, able to. There should not be any like you know, large scale architectural tools that we need to add at this stage of the game. Right. But, uh, you're kind of trading one set of problems for another. So this is one of the marketing you'll hear the marketing terms you'll hear phrases you'll hear when these frameworks talk about SSG and the benefits of static jam stack architecture, how it scales, all this stuff. They're like, you're working with a slow CMS. Don't worry anymore, right? Your people can use their CMS and you don't even care as an engineer how slow or fast it is because you're doing the work ahead of time. And that is true. But again, if you, you're trading one set of problems for another because now you don't have right. like a dynamic runtime site. And so if you get to choose a CMS or whatever off, whatever, and you can choose them that are fast enough and work together and run close enough physically to where your app server is running, you don't have to worry about it. That's one part of that decision tree the other is to unwind the services and just do things yourself the way you would uh if you were starting a new rails app and using your own local database that's next to your app server uh and just writing that code yourself or using libraries that have that code yourself as well but there's a lot of things we like about the, the services a lot of the services yeah. we use so those are that's kind of those are kind of the two parts well, of that I'm, decision tree yeah yes but i will say it's not either or i think you can end up kind of in the middle so mm -hmm. um you can still use a cms but mm -hmm. you acknowledge that like the cms is going to be for like the authoring experience and then right. maybe you you have a webhook that when someone authors something in the cms it pushes data in or you you have uh, a redis cache exactly a redis yep. cache that you just you fetch from and then you automatically evict like every no, you just you use evict when we change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And the CMS changes. Yeah. So yeah. that that is a part of this that's nice. That's like there's, we have an episode where we talked about the CMS. 
that is something that is kind of discouraged in a traditional web app architecture. You want your data there, but then we realize like you have environment independent. You have data that is uh, independent of the environment. So it's actually been wonderful having a CMS and making a change, seeing a development, seeing in production, not having multiple copies. It's been awesome to, to have that. So I wouldn't want to give that up. Uh, but like you said, you can layer in the, the, the caching or you know moving the data around uh, if you need it to be able to tolerate the request response constraints you know mm-hmm. so um yeah i mean i mean you know uh most rails apps end up with a redis cache anyways like a, a redis having redis as part of their architecture anyways because there's things that take too long and so that's a very common solution to that problem and it is lets you stick with the root architecture and not jump to having to do work ahead of time and then having this kind of like half static, half dynamic cobbled together site, right? So yeah, um, feels like as we go down this road, Redis will be something that that we take advantage of for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think, and and to what you said earlier, I think that's is where we look at, you know, what is specifically slow and then how do we solve it? Right, but wait for it to be a problem. You know, there's this phrase that we really like uh, when we're coding or mentoring people too, because, you know, a lot of people, I, I get hung up on performance or they think about it, you know, pre-optimization, uh, is, is something you hear about a lot. People on Twitter are talking about lighthouse scores and, you know, request times for big e-commerce pages. If you're starting out a new website with a friend, you don't need to be worrying about any of that. Um, it's like pre-optimization. It's not a problem we have. So you don't want to sacrifice other things that are more important, building the site and the features that your users care about for something that is not even a problem you're facing. And the phrase that we like is, um, you know, you want to make it work first. You want to make it right second and you want to make it fast third. So this is like something that I think should be in the back of everyone's mind when they're coding. You want to take the easiest path to making it work first. So if you're trying to experiment with a new chat gpt api building a page or you're making a library and you're trying to do something you haven't done before you're just trying to make something work first and that's all you should focus on it doesn't matter how clean your code is it doesn't matter how inefficient the algorithms you're using are if you are having like an m plus one issue with the loop that you wrote or there's a a more efficient way to clone an array if that's not the problem you're solving you just want to focus on making it work and so you want the input the output and that is all you should be focused on and like i've mentored tons of people and see them falling down this path where you you lose sight of that very easily because someone told me not to use this someone told me i should do it this way you shouldn't be thinking about that and then once you make it work then you want to make it right which is the fact that which which is the idea that code is changed a lot and code is read way more than it's written and so making it right really entails making it clear making it uh, correct making it bug free and you know writing tests for it and uh, you want to be happy with the code you don't want there to be debt in the code base it's fine if there's debt there while you're making it work you use some really inefficient way to do it or really uh, unclear way to do it but you wouldn't want to like finish with that because you want to make it right. And that also involves like making sure the boundaries are, are good and the public interface is, is, is uh, small so that um, people uh, don't break your behavior later or it makes, makes your code easier to change later without breaking the, the consumers of your code. All, all that good stuff that goes into basically design, right? Good, following good design principles of code. Then the last part is making it fast. Um, and uh, that's really only if, it's a, if it needs to be fast 
but um, it's a good thing to make code fast, obviously, especially we're talking about building UIs. And so the, 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 the interesting thing about the whole SSG world and like the Jamstack idea and like sacrificing everything on the altar of SSG is that you're kind of flipping those priorities. And again, it's appropriate if you understand the development of this architecture because there's people who have been pulling their hair out trying to make their site fast enough for some shopping spree and this is could be an incredible solution and we've seen lots of stories about that but if you're just starting a new a new app it's not your main focus it's not your priority and so um tie, starting with one hand tie behind your back um just because you want to end up with something that is fast because people are telling you how important it is to make a site fast and nothing can be faster than a static site is is kind of flipping it uh, upside down. And so, um, yeah, once we kind of have talked through this, and again, you can go to Build UI right now uh, and see it. I mean, if you catch this before, we, we make the switch, but uh, it's, it is fun having a site that's basically instantaneous. But at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's not the most important thing. And, and there's trade-offs and everything. There, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? So, um, yeah, I think that's a really good thing to remember, both on the small, in, in the small when you're coding, uh, but also in the large when you're making these decisions about how to, um, how to lay out your tech stack is to make it work, make it right, and then make it fast so yeah we can uh, clip that nice on twitter there you go yeah. <laughs> i do think you know uh, on the performance thing i do think there's a there's these like frameworks have to solve performance in like the general case mm -hmm. and they have to work with like websites from a to z mm -hmm. every single type of website or make like explicit trade-offs that focus on um yeah, like SSG, like the whole thing you just went through. Mm -hmm. Where with like app developers, I think you can like get away with a lot of code where you never have to make it fast because you're not trying to solve like a general case. And, right. And yeah, like I always think about like the big thing where this dawned on me is that, is that um, Ted in the early days of Embermap, you know, we're shipping like 100 megabyte videos right. to our users. Right. So like who cares about 10 KB of JavaScript? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, no, no, you know what I'm yes, saying? Like, it's, right. and that's something that made me think like, oh yeah, like the JavaScript bundle size doesn't no. matter for us because people are downloading massive videos. Now they really want, if, they want there to be more gigabytes of videos on the site. <laughs> like they are, they are banging down our DMs asking for more series. Like yeah. they've never, no one has ever said, Hey man, I love that. But like that's that, the last 10 KB of JavaScript is not, not for me. I know. I know. And that's like the joke we always make, but it, it, Seriously, it was like the thing that really just made it click for me. Yes. Is that, that if you, you the, the size of your bundle doesn't matter if the person is downloading a hundred megabyte video. Yeah. The reason they're going to your website is to download a hundred megabyte video. Yeah. And I think this is like it's really easy to twist this and say oh, it oh, is. I know. But like, at the end of the day, yeah. If you if you're the business owner, you have skin in the game. You will learn that and you will know yeah, that deep. You know, deep down and. um that's true. Ask me when my views on this stuff changed. Yeah, exa exactly. <laughs> the day I started a business. <laughs> exactly. No, and that's where all this stuff comes from is like we don't want to be uh, constrained and frustrated when our users are asking for a way to track their video views. Like we want to be able to make that as easy as possible without thinking about this stuff. And again, so that, that's, that's where all this, there's trade-offs everywhere. It's no black and white. There's no silver bullet, right? That's the essay yeah. and, and software. And um, look, we, we uh, consulted with folks at Big Ember Apps and um 
their homepage being slow because it depended on all this stuff to render just their marketing homepage was like a real problem for them. And the fact that look, we're still using Next.js because it, it's, it, it still has all the tools we need. And, and, but it is amazing. These features that have come to these frameworks, the, the, the automatic route splitting and the ability to automatically statically optimize pages on a per route basis means you can have a massive, um, bundle needed to render your Figma, you know, editor and, but the home page that is telling you the marketing information can be statically built and not depend on any of that stuff. And when we started this, we, we had to do that kind of thing ourselves. And our consulting clients were really stuck because they didn't know how to do that. And, and there was, they were doing all sorts of hacks to make that happen. And, you know, we, and then we had to make our own decisions with the Redis and cache and a node server. Like it's hard to do that stuff. Well, the fact that these frameworks do that automatically is, is unbelievable. Um, but doesn't mean it's the, the, the balance there is to make sure that you don't misidentify your problems and start going too deep into a direction that's not intended for you and doesn't balance the trade-offs for you and your, what you need, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, I think the end state of all this is like, and which is what we're seeing is that all these tools get these capabilities and you don't have to just go one way or the other. You get to do what's most appropriate. It's just not always the easiest to know what's most appropriate, especially because a lot of the stuff is changing so fast and we're still relatively early, um, in kind of this, this era. So, yeah, but, um, look at that, uh, we got a podcast out and we didn't think, uh, we didn't know how long that was going to take, but it turns out we can talk about this stuff for a long time. <laughs> so I'm excited to see, uh, where the, the, this work goes and, and then just getting rid of some of the abstractions, some of the things we had in there to try to make it easier to render that dynamic content for the quote unquote static pages and having just one paradigm for it. And uh, mm-hmm. also seeing how long it lasts until I get frustrated that I don't have data in like a cache on the client and want to do something. <laughs> I think I'll be able to manage that. Hopefully, uh, Hopefully, uh, the, uh, it'll be interesting too with the React server components as they yeah. kind of stabilize out. I, I'm really excited that we're using something that will lend itself to that paradigm, you know, if and when we it's it's right for us. So, yeah, I, I also too just to wrap like we did want to add this so that we could do uh, single topic purchases. Yeah, so that was like the main motivator here that you could land on the Framer Motion course. We could tell that you don't have an active subscription. Uh, but you've bought this course, so that's true. Um, that's a, that's now we have another bucket, right? And and the cash key is is more complicated. And then uh, you have yeah. a subscription, yeah, yep, exactly. Exactly. So I just wanted to say that. So now that like we are done with this refactor, uh, we're happy with the result. Um, we can now start adding this feature. So so that will be coming soon. Yeah. No. Absolutely. For for folks listening who are interested in the content that we make, that's you know that's uh, if you like our work, you like the videos that we make on YouTube. That's a way to support everything we do. We we have right now a subscription based uh, offering on Build UI. That's twenty nine dollars a month. But a lot of people, hey, I just want to watch the Frame of Motion course. I just want to watch the Tailwind course. We're going to be offering that, and you can just buy it as a one time purchase. So uh, yes, that and many more things. All the kinds of reasons we wanted to go with this architecture and uh, I'm excited to get it out the door. So um, I think with that, we can wrap it up. But um, any last words? Is that it? Long live request response? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Cool, man. Sounds good. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for joining. And um, that's three weeks in a row for us. Last week, I thought it was three weeks in a row. It wasn't. It was two, but this was three. So I've been having fun keeping up with these. Um, We're going to have to do it again next week. 
Nice. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everyone. And uh, talk to you then. Bye-bye. See ya. Thank you.